Make your way, if you will, back to Luke chapter 7. <clears throat> In our culture, the heart is used to symbolize loving affection. Some cultures use the liver or the bowel to express that notion. I doubt any of you received a liver-shaped valentine yesterday. And to tell your valentine that you love her with all your bowel might prove a little less than romantic in our culture, but we've just gotten used to this idea of speaking of the heart in that way. We use the heart. Heart shapes are everywhere around Valentine's Day, and we commonly use phrases such as, I love you with all of my heart. We know what that means. The heart symbolizes loving affections, but the heart also symbolizes bitter affections. We speak of suffering a broken heart, and we're not talking about a medical condition. We suffer a broken heart when the loving affection we place on someone or something is crushed. Our heart is broken when someone we love ends the relationship. A long-hoped-for dream is dashed to pieces. A child leaves the faith. And the most bitter source of pervasive heartbreak in our human experience is death. Every day across the face of this planet, hearts are crushed by the enemy of death. Every day in the newspaper, column upon column of obituaries express the soulful cry of broken hearts, severed from the ones they loved. Death is a cruel and bitter foe. It causes untold misery. It breaks hearts. But we are assembled here this morning to rejoice in the truth that Jesus Christ came to earth to defeat death. And during his ministry on earth, he repeatedly put death on notice, as he does here in Luke chapter 7 where we find back-to-back accounts in which Jesus demonstrates his power over this bitter enemy of death. In both of these accounts, Jesus heals broken hearts by defeating death in dramatic fashion. And in these demonstrations of power, we are reminded of the authoritative power of Jesus and the hope that we can have that he will, in the end, free us from this enemy. We find Jesus raises a dying servant to health, in verse 1 of chapter 7, we pick up the text there, following upon this great sermon that, G- that ends there in chapter 6, that Jesus preaches on the plain. When Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Following this sermon, chapter 6 and verse 17, the sermon on the plain, Jesus returns to the town of Capernaum on Lake Galilee. Now remember, Capernaum is the, home, uh, is the base of his Galilean ministry. He will come in and out of this town numerous times. Now the situation that he finds as he comes back to Capernaum, verse 2, there's a centurion servant whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. Now centurions were commanding soldiers in the backbone of the Roman army. They were prominent men, often wealthy, and entrusted with significant power and responsibility in this militaristic culture of Rome. As there were no forces of Caesar stationed in Galilee at the time, it would appear that this man is serving Herod Antipas, and has under his direction 
perhaps a hundred men, sometimes the number varied a bit, but he is a, an important man, perhaps a mercenary, at any rate a Gentile. As Jesus enters Capernaum, this man is in great consternation, for death was breathing down the neck of a servant he valued very highly. He did not want to lose this servant, but the cold hand of death was reaching for another victim, and there was nothing that the centurion could do. His heart was breaking, and he was desperate. He appeals to Jesus, verse 3. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him. Now apparently hearing of Jesus means he heard that he had come back to Capernaum. It also means that he had heard that he is a man capable of healing people who are sick. He's heard of Jesus and so he sends. And notice very amazing phrase here. He sends some elders of the Jews to him asking him to come and heal his servant. News of Jesus' healing power was widespread by this point in time, so when news reached the centurion that Jesus was back in town, hope wells up in his heart. Maybe Jesus would heal his servant, his trusted servant. As a Gentile, he chooses not to risk alienating Jesus, as a Jew was expected to have no contact with Gentiles at this, in this setting. So the centurion sends several elders of the Jews. Now that's an amazing idea. To have Jewish officials willingly perform the bidding of a Roman centurion is remarkable. The reason they are willing to do so is that this man is on their side. Verse 4, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. Knowing what we learn later of this man's character, it seems safe to assume that he donated this money for their synagogue with no ulterior motives. He does appear to love God or at least be respectful of God and the ways of Israel. He apparently respects these people enough to supply the money to pay for the synagogue. Now that would have been quite expensive and there are archaeological finds in this area in the city of Nain as a matter of fact that indicate these synagogues were ornate uh, buildings. We don't know if he supplied all of the money, but he was the chief donator, if not the contributor to all of the money for this synagogue. He's done all of this for us, they say. It was not every day that you saw Jesus going out, or Jews rather, going out of their way to commend a Roman soldier. And to commend him as a really genuine good guy. He must have been unique. Now, we might forgive them for their uh, earnest sincerity here, but they are, of course, flat out wrong when they say that he deserves to have you do this because of what he has done for us. It's kind of a self-serving statement in many respects. He deserves this kindness. He has merited God's grace by his good works. In a subtle way, Jesus will expose this error in their thinking, but it is at any rate a heartwarming scene. They are genuinely pulling for this Roman soldier. And may I add, quite confident at this point that Jesus can in fact heal the servant. The message is getting out that Jesus can rob death by healing people of sickness. So verse 6, Jesus went with them. Jesus did not heal everyone. But he is moved by this appeal for this Gentile, and he goes with them, 
Verse 6, he was not far from the house, however, when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. I don't know how to fill in the pieces here. We don't know exactly, but apparently the soldier, the Roman centurion, after he dispatches this group, this group of Jews, becomes anxious about the whole thing and thinks, you know, maybe I've not done the right thing. To call Jesus, I'm, I'm, I'm really imposing upon him here. Jesus does not have to physically be in my house. If he has the power to heal the sick, Jesus can just speak the word. If I have the power to speak the word and people do my bidding, could he not speak the word and someone do his bidding? So verse 7, that is why I do not even consider myself worthy to come to you, he said, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, verse 8, with soldiers under me. I tell this one go, and he goes, and that one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. We see the man's sincere humility. I don't deserve Jesus to come here. And we see the man's depth of faith. He believes in Jesus' power. He knows that he can heal. In verse 9, we read of Jesus' response. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Great faith was expected of the covenant people, but this man was a Gentile. His faith amazes Jesus, and it is his faith that Jesus commends. The Jewish officials spoke of the man's works. Jesus speaks of his faith, and he turns to the crowd that is there to make the point very specific. Verse 10, Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Once again, Jesus puts death on notice. He robs death of another victim, demonstrating his power over death. He's uninhibited by the centurion's nationality. He is uninhibited by his occupation. He is uninhibited by his religious status. He's a Gentile. Jesus commends this man for understanding that he has power over death. He commends this man for his faith. He is, read and wonder, amazed by this man's faith. Jesus amazed by the faith of a Gentile. A point that is now illustrated in an even more dramatic fashion, this point that Jesus can defeat death. This man believes that. And Christ, in fact, does simply heal the man from a distance. Doesn't even say that he speaks a word. He wills it, and it's done, whether he spoke a word or not. He raises this man to health. He lifts him up in his sickness. He raises a dying servant to health. Now, we see at verse 11 that Jesus raises a dead son to life. Two companion accounts dealing with death. We have the journey to Nain in verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. Nain is perhaps between 20 and 25 miles from Capernaum, and so would have taken about a day to arrive there. Since funerals are generally done at night in the evening, uh, it's possible that he set out early that morning from Capernaum and walked to Nain. A long day's journey. He's attended, you see here in verse 11, by his disciples. And also there are many other people who are following this now wildly popular rabbi. 
It's fun to just walk around and hear what he says. It's fun to walk around, certainly, and see the show of the miracles. And so there's these people attached to Jesus, uh, uh, crowded with him, around him, and walking with him on this journey. The situation that is encountered here, verse 12, is that as he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. The large crowd following Jesus then is approaching the city gate of Nain, while a large crowd is exiting the city gate. According to Jewish burial customs, it was probably evening, and probably the evening of the very day that the man died. The corpse washed and anointed, then wrapped in linen, was placed on a bier, B-I-E-R, or a litter, a board, essentially. His body's placed on the board. There are different ways of keeping it there, but we're not thinking here of a coffin. In fact, the text below will use that word coffin. It's a poor translation because it conjures up the wrong thought in our mind. But he's laying flat on this board, wrapped in this shroud. This linen material has wrapped the corpse, and their men are carrying him, whether how exactly they're carrying him, perhaps on their shoulders, perhaps down below, but they're carrying this board, and here's this man. It's very obviously a funeral procession. If we saw, as we leave church today, a line of cars with their lights on going very slowly, and a, uh, a motorcycle out in front, and we see some flags on some lead limousines, we all know this is a funeral procession. This is a, they're going to bury this body. This is what everybody perceives as they walk toward this gate. Out of the gate comes this, this large crowd mourning the passing of this man. So before, in front of, that is, in front of this bier, this, the body as he's being carried out, the man's mother, by custom, would have walked in front of the bier. She would have stood out there with and walked with other women, and there were probably some professionals playing flutes and cymbals and a loud wailing and mourning that uh, was very eerie and could not be missed. Earlier that day, we would assume, or the day before, a ram's horn had sounded and served notice that death had claimed another victim. This is what Jesus sees as he is walking toward the gate to enter the town of Nain. And we see his response in verse 13. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. His heart went out to her, or he was moved with compassion on her. Jesus read the situation, and his heart was moved with sympathy for this grieving woman. He did not just say, oh, we've got to keep our crowd away from their crowd. Or this, is a, this is a traffic jam. We've got a little mess here. He didn't say, oh, that's too bad. Jesus looked and perceived who the mother was and the situation that she was in. It's also possible that were she wealthy enough to hire an orator, this orator was standing out in front speaking the good acts of this man and may have in indicated that he was an only son. A monogenes, the Greek word, an only son to this woman. However Jesus perceives all of this, he puts it together and his heart goes out to this woman. He's moved with compassion for her. And his sympathy leads to action. Notice that. He approaches the woman and speaks directly to her. Now, he didn't have to do this, but he does. He chooses to go right up to her, and he says to her, don't cry. And I imagine that as he speaks those words, they are filled 
with compassion. They're filled with a sincerity that gets her attention. Don't cry. Don't weep. Certainly by this point, the woman is watching and hearing. The crowd is watching and hearing. The crowd watches him. The crowd watches her. The procession is still apparently moving. The people are still walking. And verse 14, Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. Certainly contracting ritual defilement here, but that's not an important point because of what is going to happen. But he puts his hand on this board, and they all stop. It says here that he touches the coffin. That's the board. Not a coffin as we think of it. The procession stops, and where are we at now? Think of it. Movement of people out. Movement of people in. Jesus touches. Everything stops. Where Jesus is at this point, he is toe-to-toe, chin-to-chin, and eye-to-eye with death. He stops the procession right here. And he says to this corpse, young man, I say to you, arise. In that moment, Jesus speaks. And I would imagine, as everything has stopped and he speaks, that no one is really breathing. What is he doing? What will happen? The result we find, of course, in verse 15 is that the dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. There's so much intrigue between the lines in that simple, straightforward statement. Jesus had claimed this man's life. Death had claimed his life. Now Jesus took it right back. No amount of weeping and wailing and prayer could bring the man back, but a simple word from Jesus did. Can you see him there? All bound up in that linen, then sitting up on this board. The breath of life returns The facial cloth falls from his face. The color rushes back into his cheeks. He speaks. The beer is lowered. The linen shroud unraveled from around him. And Jesus presents the man to his mother alive. What a way to wreck a funeral. What a day. In front of many witnesses, Jesus stormed the gates of death. He broke down that iron gate. He snatched this young man back to life. How his mother must have rejoiced and worshipped. And she wasn't alone, verse 16. They were all filled with awe and praise God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. There seem to be two ideas here. First of all, they are filled with awe, or the Greek word could be translated fear. Although they did not understand who Jesus was, they knew a man of God was in their presence that day. They had witnessed unearthly power, and it struck fear in their hearts. Not far from this very town, several centuries earlier at Shunem, the prophet Elisha had raised a young had raised a woman's young son to life, and, she, and he had returned that boy to his mother alive. That very phrase is used in 2 Kings chapter 4 and verse 36. He returned the boy to his mother. These people aren't dumb. 
On top of that, they are very, very aware of history. They know that right down the road at Shunem, many centuries earlier, there was a great prophet that had returned a dead boy to his mother. And they are stunned as they see this event take place in little old Nain. No one even really knows where it is today. But this little insignificant town, the prophet has come here and has done what Elisha had done. And so it's no accident that they say with great wisdom and and with insight, a great prophet has appeared among us. Miracles do not happen every day. Miracles do not happen every generation. But when they do, God is at work. God is at work in this man. And so they feared because they knew the power of God flowed from Jesus. Another prophet had risen in the land. But there's a second strain here. Not only did they fear that a prophet had been raised up, but they also praised God because, it says at the end of verse 16, focus on that if you, ha- if you can there, God has come to help his people. They praised God because it was clear that He had visited them. Indeed, He had, and in a way they did not yet understand. God was there in their presence. But all they can put together at this point is that a great prophet is among us. God is working. The mother certainly responds. The crowd responds with fear and praise of God. And the response goes even further, verse 17. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding countryside. Now, Nain is in Galilee, so Judea here probably stands for Palestine as it's used elsewhere in Luke. In other words, the story spread like wildfire. God had visited his people. A dead man was raised to light. A great prophet was among them, and they knew it. This deed was not done in secret, was it? There were many witnesses, any one of which could have claimed that it was all a hoax, not one of which ever did. The enemies of Jesus never asked, Hey, now, where is that man that you supposedly raised in name? Let's find him and let's put him under some scrutiny here and ask some tough questions to this guy. They never tried that. And there is a massive group of people here who knew the man and knew that he was dead. And there's a whole group of people here who don't know the man, apparently, coming from Capernaum or from the surrounding area. They also witnessed this. So you have those who don't know him and those who do know him. You have his own mother there. No one ever raises any thought about the idea that Jesus, in fact, did not raise this man from the dead. They know what commentators today don't know, some of them. I read one commentator who I very much respect and often use and quote from time to time who spent time in his commentary arguing how this man really wasn't dead. He was in some sort of state in which many people in Israel ended up being buried alive because no one understood that he was dead. Well, none of the people who saw it ever thought that. They knew the man was dead. In fact, the Greek text in the perfect tense makes it very clear that the man was dead. He had come to a place of permanent death as far as everyone else was concerned. He was gone. In fact, no one ever raised any objection to the stories 
that Jesus raised the dead? What was the answer that the objectors came to? You either had to believe that Jesus was from God and had the power of God to raise the dead, or you had one other option. What was it? That it was through the power of Satan that he did it. There were no objectors in the time of Jesus because the people that he raised were there. People knew they were dead and they knew they were alive. The answer was that he's driven by Satan. That's the only option. the only option that you had. No honest person could deny that this dead man was now walking and alive and in perfect health. And no honest person could deny that Jesus was clearly the author of life and the conqueror of death. And that's the point. As we think of what Jesus has done here, as we put ourselves, so to speak, among that crowd of people who are following him and discerning his ways, one thing that we learn about Jesus on these two days, perhaps back-to-back days, the Greek text is not specific enough to say, but that's very probable by the, text, uh, by the word that's used in the text. One thing we know as we follow Jesus around is, number one, that he cares for broken hearts. Jesus is not a callous miracle worker who simply wants to draw a crowd. Jesus is interested in people. He can discern the needs that people have. He can discern the broken heart, and he acts to alleviate that pain. We have, says the author of Hebrews, a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. For he was tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin so that we can draw near to the throne of God and appeal to the help of our great high priest, Jesus Christ, because he has this understanding. He knows what it is to have a broken heart. And he knows how to identify with those who are broken by the horrors of sin. Now, we don't have his power, but we can have and we should have Jesus' orientation. We cannot act as he did and raise the dead and heal the sick and perform these wonders. But the followers of Jesus are people of thoughtful, active compassion. They are people who can put themselves in the place of others and who actively bear up the load of broken hearts. They're people who can discern on the face and in the experience of others that there are days of trial that are being experienced here. They can see in the situations of life that people hurt. They can put themselves in the place of others and actively bear the load. That's the kind of man that Jesus was. He saw this woman He was moved with compassion. He acted. But beyond that point and far standing, I think, above it is this point, that Jesus defeated death. He defeated death and he did so for you. Do you have a broken heart today? Perhaps death itself has crushed your heart. No matter the pain No matter what trial we may suffer, no matter the difficulty, even if it's death itself, let's take this home with us today and let this sink down into our heart. Jesus Christ defeated the grave.
He beat death. We will suffer. Our hearts will be broken in this fallen world. But we have this hope. One day, Jesus of Nazareth put death on notice. One day, He stormed the gates of hell and He broke through those bars. Here before us in the text of Scripture, He heals one who is sick and He raises one who is dead. The resurrection that is experienced here by this man tells us Jesus has this power. And as His life plays out, as He submits Himself to death, Jesus will Himself defeat death. The resurrection of Jesus Christ should infuse us with this hope that He has defeated our greatest foe. Now we have to endure, don't we? We have to press on in this fallen world and we have to suffer. But we can know that not even death will defeat us in the end. So come what may, Let's never forget that Jesus has dealt a death blow to your greatest enemy and mine. Death has been conquered. We have nothing to lose in the end and only life to gain. Now, what is the weight in between? Here we are under this world of sorrow and difficulty, and death will affect us, it will hurt us, it will break our hearts. And sin will continue to have its effects. But we look to this future knowing that there is there a Savior who has defeated death and sin and has conquered our greatest foe. What is it in between? What that's called is faith. It's living today in light of the final victory that is assured to us by Jesus. We are called to live by faith, to live by confidence in His future Grace, because our destiny as Jesus' people is to enter His victory and to, in the end, conquer death with Him. Now, we're going to have to pass through death. We're going to have to pass into this next life. But we do so with an image burned in our brains and on our souls. And that image is an empty tomb. When you see the specter of death, as a believer in Jesus Christ, saved by the power of the Spirit of God, you have the privilege to look into an empty tomb and to know that nothing on heaven, in heaven or earth or under the earth can ever defeat you. Because you have been robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and have thereby been identified with His death and resurrection. We have nothing to fear. He's defeated the ultimate foe. I can know that someday my broken heart will be healed. I can know someday that sin and death will be forever removed. I can endure anything in His power. What I need is the faith. I need the confidence to hold to that victory and know that someday it will be mine. It's absolutely ludicrous to hold to such a hope unless you believe in the resurrection of the dead. 
If you do not believe in the resurrection of the dead, there's nothing in your heart that can cling to that truth. You have nothing to hold on to. Even the Bible says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you're going to die. You've got nothing to live for. But if the Spirit of God is working and active in your life to convince you of this truth, that there is a resurrection of the dead, then armed with that knowledge through saving faith in Jesus Christ, we have nothing to fear. Think of the trial and the heartache, the broken heart that you perhaps are dealing with right now. And know, you can trace the lines, you can know that behind that broken heart and that suffering and the difficulty is sin. Your sin, someone else's sin, the sin of this fallen world, somewhere there it's the result of sin. So no matter what it is, you can know that it has been covered by Christ. It has been defeated by Jesus when He put His hand on that beer. And He said to that man, sit up. He is saying to us, He has the power over death. And when He walked out of that tomb, when He rose from the dead, He said all of the suffering of sin has been defeated. What I must do now is walk in faith and in the confidence of the future realization of this victory. Put it all under this great enemy, death, and know that Jesus paid it all. What hope we can take as we stand before an empty tomb and praise God that Jesus is Lord because he's risen from the dead. He's the conqueror of our greatest foe, and he is therefore our greatest ally. We need to walk with him and love him and serve him, and we need, by his grace, to rejoice in this victory. Will you do that with me as we stand in prayer? Breathe in prayer before the Lord your thanks for what Jesus Christ has done. Our Father, thank you for sending Jesus. We know that he laid down his life and he did so because your hand delivered him to those who crucified him. And we know that He suffered and that you suffered in a way that is beyond our imagination when you left Him go to bear our sin and to pay the penalty. God, our Father, we thank you for this act of love that released your beloved Son. That released your only begotten Son to die in our place. God, our hearts fill with thanks and glory as we thank you that he defeated death and lives today in your presence. And that he is the one who goes before us now so that we can enter into that same victory. What great joy and prospect is ours. And I pray for those who suffer here today, for those that 
Sickness is breaking their hearts. For those for whom death itself has broken their hearts. For those who in many other evidences of sin are dealing with trial and suffering and heartache today. I pray, God, not that we just shove it under the carpet and pretend it's not here, but I pray that we would, in fact, respond in faith. And that as we sing this closing song, that it would be words of faith that flow from our hearts, faith that lifts up your truth revealed in your word and says, I am one of those who have entered the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. If there's any among us who do not know him in this saving way, I pray that you will bring them to saving faith, that the light of the gospel would dawn upon their dark souls and that you would bring them to see that we are by nature fallen and sinful but that Jesus paid the penalty of our sin. That they would embrace by faith this simple message as you enlighten their eyes to see it. I pray with all of my heart that we will walk from this place with a blazing hope inside. That you would rebuke us for our discouragement. That you would rebuke us for our trivial smallness as we look at the little problems that we face and that we will look higher and further in, and that we would see that you have defeated our greatest foe. We have nothing to fear. Lift our souls, Lord, in this great truth, and may we sing that because Jesus lives, we can face tomorrow with confidence and hope. It's through Jesus and because of what he's done that we come into your presence and lay down these requests and these words of praise. Amen.